In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The topic for my sermon this morning is light. And light is one of those things that alongside of time and breath and beating hearts that we frequently take for granted. We flip light switches and pull light chains to illuminate the rooms that we enter. And we make our way about our planet as it orbits a celestial body, which gives us light by which to live. This is just to say that we, and we that is perhaps excluding the painters and photographers among us, take light not as itself the object of our attention, but as an instrument literally to shed light on the other things that occupy our conscious daily lives. Occasionally, we might notice the way a particular light looks as it reflects off something else, as when in the fall the late afternoon sun heightens the contrast between cobalt clouds and vibrant yet-to-fall leaves. In short, we frequently notice light only by its absence. We notice light only when it is dark. In fact, light is so ubiquitous in our lives that darkness is on the brink of extinction. Perhaps you are familiar with what are known as dark sky preserves. These areas typically around observatories that have been marked off or protected as light-free zones in order to stop the intruding light pollution that comes from the ever-expanding urban sprawl, as we West Suburban Chicagoans know so well. Here in Wheaton, in fact, even the darkest of nights are lit by a faint glow that blocks out all but the brightest of the stars. Those who are advocating for these dark sky preserves recognize the importance of getting away from light so that we can know what it is to be in darkness. And that thick and black darkness actually, paradoxically even, makes it possible to see the light of the stars and other celestial bodies in ways we otherwise could not. There are 18 of these dark sky preserves in the United States and 20 in Canada. And while I have not been to any of these official preserves myself, I, like many of you, I suspect, have been to some reasonably dark places in our country that have afforded a view of the expansive night sky and that belt of nearly indistinguishable stars that is our galaxy, the Milky Way. There's something that's quite oddly wonderful about staring into the expansive night sky and feeling oneself dwarfed and insignificant by the infinite existence that lies beyond us. Our current epiphany season is the time we celebrate and remember the revelation or manifestation of God in the face of the person Jesus Christ, the baby born in Bethlehem who was at the same time the creator and ruler of the sky and the bodies that light it. Christ himself later tells us in the Gospel of John that he is indeed the light of the world. And in this light, the light of Christ, a new day has dawned. And the light of that new dawn is even now ever inching its way closer to us, growing brighter and brighter. Our text today in this epiphany season play with the theme of light in a few different ways that I hope to illuminate for us. Our psalm for today begins with David's assertion, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
He tells us that his one hope is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That is to see the one who himself is light. On the surface, it is not quite clear that David really knows what he is hoping for here. Recall the episode between God and Moses in Exodus 33, where Moses asks God to reveal God's glory to him. God's response is a resolute no. You cannot see my face, for humans shall not see me and live. And he compromises by allowing Moses to see his back, whatever we are to take that to mean. But David tells us later in the psalm that God himself has told us that humans should, in fact, seek his face. And so I think that David means not that we should do something that we know will kill us, and so that we cannot really do anyway, but rather that we should hope that God will reveal himself to us in the midst of our search. For without that revelation or that manifestation, we will never find what we are truly looking for. Perhaps those of us who are not quite as bold as David or as Moses can take refuge in Paul's claim that these invisible things of God's nature are made visible in creation, in the creation that God has made. For those with eyes to see, God's invisible power and glory, Romans tells us, can be perceived in that they have been made by the one whose light is so radiant that it shines through every riven thing. But the lights of creation, as magnificent as they are, are definitively not the lights that hold our attention during the epiphany season. For we are concerned with a brighter light, and one that never flickers and never fades. Or better, we are concerned with the one whose light is the source of all other light, whose goodness and love are the sources of all other goodness and love. This is the light we find, to quote Paul's words in the second letter to the Corinthians, in the face of Jesus Christ. In some ways, we might be caused to think that this new manifestation at epiphany of the light of God in Christ is just something like an intensification of the weaker and fainter glimmers of light that have always and everywhere been shining since the first glorious beam of light burst into existence. But I do not think a mere quantitative difference is sufficient. Here we are contemplating a qualitative difference. For God's presence has now been made a person with a body. God's face is now visible in the face of Jesus Christ, who tells us that anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. Anyone who has looked into the loving face of Christ has seen what Moses could not see and what David longed to see. This radically new light is the focus of the epiphany season and the focus of our texts this morning. And this brings me to our reading from chapter 9 of the book of the prophet Isaiah. The most famous lines from this chapter come after our reading for this morning. Lines which speak of the coming of the Christ as the Davidic king, upon whose shoulders the government will rest, and in whose name justice and peace will stamp out all oppression. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the text says. But our text comes immediately prior to these famous verses. And Isaiah tells us that the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. 
as we continue to read the passage as people who have seen the dawning of the light of Christ, we know that this light of which Isaiah speaks is the child come to bring redemption to Israel and to the world. But there is a bit of narrative irony in what Isaiah is doing in this text. In the preceding chapter, chapter 8, Isaiah says that even though the Lord was hiding his face from the house of Jacob, Isaiah will nonetheless continue to hope that God's face will one day again shine favorably upon his people. Isaiah says that those around him had given up hope and could see no dawn. They will look to the earth, he says, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah's language of darkness here is trying to communicate a sense of hopelessness. People were so overcome by the darkness that any light of hope was completely stamped out. In this way, I doubt Isaiah's day was that different from our own, when for many the light of daily life is blotted out by the clouds of darkness that come from diseases and depression and death and divorce and division. But Isaiah himself refuses to live in the narrative of darkness, the narrative of hopelessness. And in what itself is an act of light, an act of hope, he affirms in verse 1 of chapter 9 that there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Now, it is really easy for us to think of Isaiah here as an inspired prophet who, by virtue of having been given a special sort of glimpse into God's future plans for his life and for the life of the rest of the world, is able confidently to declare that hopelessness of, that the hopelessness of the people around him is an irrational response to their situation. That is, we might see Isaiah as a bit unlike us. Yes, we might imagine Isaiah saying, I can see why you have given up hope, but you aren't listening to God's promises closely enough. And here are what those promises to you are. But this does not appear to be the case in this text. Isaiah does not to be, seem to be making this sort of appeal, in fact. One commentator notes that in contrast to the previous chapter, where Isaiah says, the Lord spoke to me in this way before communicating the content of God's message to him, he has no new word to offer from God in this section. Isaiah's words of hope, in other words, are not a direct promise coming from God. He's not relaying a message he has received from on high, even though that's how we often read these words. The words we read are the prophet's own words, based on nothing other than God's past covenant faithfulness to the promises God made to the people of Israel, those promises based on God's electing decree to be Israel's God and for them to be his people. Here Isaiah is resourcing his tradition and allowing his faith in the God of Israel and in that God's promises to him to motivate this hopeful proclamation that the light will someday come. God will not, and indeed cannot, hide his face forever. He cannot do this, not only because he has promised that he would not, but also because his nature of love is the sort that bursts forth like rays of the sun and stamps out darkness in the most hidden corners and recesses of the world. God is light, and such effusive light cannot be hidden forever. 
Isaiah's proclamation of light is itself an act of declarative light for those who will hear. Isaiah's speech in our text is itself an act of hope. I'm here reminded of a parallel between Isaiah's words and a text that I get to teach this coming week in my philosophy of religion course at Wheaton College, Jonathan Lear's book, Radical Hope. In short, in this book, Lear tells the story of Plenty Coup, a leader of a nomadic Western Native American tribe known as the Crow. Through some unfortunate circumstances and government rulings in the latter part of the 19th century, this tribe was resigned to take up life on a reservation, which would effectively end life for these people as they had known it for their entire existence. Lear cites the chief Plenty Coup's words about his nation's life after being relocated to the reservation. After this, Plenty Coup said, nothing happened. Their previous life was over and new life was unimaginable. But the remarkable thing about Plenty Coup, as Lear tells it, is that he was able to conceive of a new way of life for his people that could continue on their previous traditions in, a new, in, in new and unexpected ways, even though the situation they faced was radically different. Plenty Coup displayed a radical hope in the face of the decline of his civilization. Similarly to Plenty Coup, Isaiah refused to live in the darkness of hopelessness and spoke words of light to those who would hear. In many ways, our situation is similar to Isaiah's, but we are able to gaze on the face of the light who has come and indeed who will come again. And this is exactly what the Gospel of Matthew tells us, quoting from our passage in Isaiah. Jesus went to this specific region so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus tells us that this dawning of the light of God is what it means for the kingdom of heaven to be at hand. But Matthew also tells us that Christ's actions were themselves a sort of proclamation of that coming kingdom. He went throughout the land, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That is, part of Christ's mission was to bring hope to the hopeless, that their lives might continue in ways they had never thought possible. I'm reading a novel right now called All the Light We Cannot See, and I won't give away the plot of what is a fantastic book, but it reminds me that the trouble with light is that it is too often hidden by darkness in innumerable ways. Like the disciples, we have been called by Christ himself, having been baptized into his death and resurrection. But our time is like Isaiah's, and it can be difficult to have hope even though the light has come. Which leads me now to my final point, made clear in the reading from St. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Paul urges the Corinthians to rid themselves of divisions in their common pursuit of Christ. While much here could be said about the need for us to see the light of Christ in the face of the poor, the weak, the sick, and the homeless, I think a more immediate application of our text lies in our own common life together. The life of the church's worship is a bit like Isaiah's speech. It is an act of hope and of light. 
not only to those who have not yet seen Christ's light, but also to those who have, but for whom diseases and depression and death and divorce and division have caused the darkness to descend. When you confess your belief in the creed in a few moments, your act of doing so stands as a message of hope for those who, for whatever reason, lack the faith and hope to do so themselves. Using the Christian imagination to bring hope to the hopeless in some ways is just what it means to, as the creed says, look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Not to sit around and wait by ourselves for that coming day, but actively to shine Christ's light everywhere we can so that others, even those around us, might see. The poet Christian Wyman says in his book, My Bright Abyss, I am pretty certain that without shared social devotion, one's solitary experiences of God wither into a form of withholding, spiritual stinginess, the light of Christ growing ever fainter in the glooms of the self. The light of Christ shines in the face of the other, those who are not us. And as we turn outward from ourselves to be beacons of light in the midst of darkness, we will continually be renewed by God's heavenly grace and experience the wonder of Christ's saving presence. And here I will let St. John, whom we might call the theologian of light, have the final word, citing the final chapter of his revelation. He writes, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. May it be so. Amen.